With that, let us now turn to our passage for this morning. It's going to be from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, entitled, Why Listen to Jesus? Pastor Bill will continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. I'll be reading from the ESV. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Good morning. For those of you who don't, we've not yet met, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And just following up on what Luke has said, if you wait five minutes, that will be too long. Someone will come and want to talk with you. Uh, it's a warm, welcoming church. I invite you then to enjoy and engage uh, the community here. As Luke said, we are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark today. Mark has kept our focus on Jesus throughout the first couple of chapters. Jesus kicks off his ministry, and it's a very urgent ministry. He's in constant motion. We see him teaching and healing, casting out demons, calling followers, provoking confrontations with religious leaders. He is swamped by crowds, so much so that in verse 20 of today's passage, he doesn't have time to eat. And as we saw last week, Mark has started to shift our focus from Jesus himself to the people around Jesus, from what Jesus has been doing to those for whom he's doing it. And so last week we watched that as Jesus calls people to himself, that there are those who want him. They respond to him. They come to him just to be with him now and later to be sent out with his message. This week continues that theme of how people respond to Jesus. But today, we see responses from three different groups. First, there's his natural family, his mother and brothers. They think he's out of his mind, that he's lost his grip on reality, and that he needs an intervention, that, you know, a little, little religion that's good, but he is overboard. And what he really needs is for them to take him firmly in hand in order to put an end to what he's doing. That's one response to Jesus. Then there's the scribes, the religious leaders. They think he's way worse than crazy. They think that he's fronting for Satan. 
that even though what he's doing looks good, it's actually powered by demonic forces. And then there's this last group of people. We're not told specifically who they are or necessarily what they're thinking. We're told instead what they're doing. That verse 32, they are not outside the building where Jesus is, but they're inside. They're with him, sitting down around him. Not like the crowd last week, pressing in on him in such a way that it's dangerous to come close to crushing him. But verse 35, from Jesus' perspective, these people are doing the will of God in sitting there, being with him. In other words, these are disciples. These are followers of Christ. Somewhere along the line, they have heard his call to repent and to believe the good news that God has come to rescue him. They've heard the call to be with him, and that's what they're doing. They're with him, listening to him. Now, this is really important. Notice this. In some sense, all three of these groups see exactly the same thing. They watch the same Jesus as he races all around, but they do not come to the same conclusion. And that raises a question for you and me this morning. How do we know which one of their responses is right? Is Jesus crazy? Is he a well-intentioned man, but someone who is badly mistaken as to who he is and what he's doing? Is he out of his mind? And if he is, well, then he's someone who needs to be helped. Or is he evil? Is he a bad man who intentionally deceives people? Is he a con man who's trying to suck people into something that's going to hurt them? Or, thirdly, is he who he says he is? Is he the one who brings the kingdom of God? Is he the king who summons people to himself? Three different options here. And the question is, how do you know? How do you decide which one of those is right? And you realize here that the question goes to the heart of how do you know whether to trust someone or not? How do you know when to listen to someone and when not to? How do you know when to stop what you're doing and let them break into your world and when to just shut them out? How do you know when to pay attention to someone and reshape your world around the kinds of things that they're saying and when do you simply ignore them? How do you know when to listen? Let me give you a story. A number of years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night and I had this stabbing, sharp pain in the middle of my lower back and it felt like someone had a knife in there and was moving it up and down. If I moved the wrong way, all of the uh, muscles just spasmed. Somehow I made it out of bed into the bathroom, which was good, because without being too graphic, lost it out of both ends into the proper receptacles. And then I lay there on the floor waiting for morning when my wife would hope, hopefully wake up. It was pretty clear when she did that I was not getting better on my own, so we called an ambulance. They literally had to carry me down off the second floor because I could not do it without my back seizing. Very short ride to the hospital, and yet I, I'm screaming several times as we hit the different potholes and bumps. I ended up apologizing to the EMT. He was very gracious. He said, don't worry about it. It's fine. We got to the ER. I got to have two shots of some super-duper meds over a couple of hours before it started to make any kind of difference at all. I'm very, very glad that it was only a kidney stone. I have never had pain like that before. I was pretty embarrassed, frankly, at my response. And then I had a friend who came to me and she said, I have had two children, birthed two children, and I had a kidney stone. 
and the stone was worse. And I thought, okay, thank you, that, that, that restores a little bit of my dignity. After I got done passing the stone, I went to the nephrologist. He looks over all of the tests and lab results, and then he explained to me something I did not want to hear. He said that apparently, once your kidney does this the first time, it kind of learns how to do this, and that you can expect that it will try this again. He said there's a couple of things you can do for diet, but he said the real thing that you can do for yourself, Mr. Smith, he said you have a very simple choice. You can drink a gallon of liquid a day, or you can come back and see me again. And I thought, man, is that all I have to do? <laughs> if I do that, then I'm never going to have to... Sold. I'm, I'm all in. Now, why did I listen to him at that time? And why am I still, ten years, over 10 years later, still drinking way more than most of you want to think about? Not quite a gallon, but an awful lot. Why am I doing that? Why did I take him seriously? Two reasons. One, I knew I had a problem. I knew I had a problem that I could not solve on my own, a problem that I did not want to ever have to deal with again. And secondly, I believed that he had a solution. I believed he knew what to do about my problem. The way that you respond to Jesus shows whether you think you have the problem that he thinks you have. And it shows whether you think he knows what to do about the problem that you have. If you see the world the way he does, and if you think he's able to deal with it, then you will do everything in your power to get to him. Everything in your power to spend time with him. You will interrupt your day, you will disrupt your life, you will move things around, you will do whatever it takes just so that you can be with him. To sit at his feet inside with him listening not outside trying to manage him but if you don't if you don't think the problem is as bad as he thinks or if you think that the problem is something else other than what he thinks or if you think that what he offers is not up to dealing with the problem you're not going to value him very much you will try to manage him you might even try to dismiss him. So what we're going to talk about today goes to the heart of whether you will or will not develop a close, intimate relationship with Christ. Now, Jesus' family didn't. They had a natural kinship connection. They were close because of what you could call an accident of birth. They grew up with him. But they didn't really know him, even though they'd been around him all of his life. It's a little bit like a lot of us who have grown up in the church. If that's you, you know that it's very easy to be aware of Jesus, to be around him all of your life, but not necessarily to have any real passion for him, not any real interest in him. You know what it's like to come to church on a Sunday morning, because you can't imagine on a Sunday morning being anywhere else and not feeling guilty. Or you come because that's where your social and your relational connections are. You come, but you don't come for him. You come to manage him, not to be with him. The religious leaders, on the other hand, did not have a family connection to Jesus. But they were engaged with him because they had something else. They had a religious system that Jesus kept messing with. 
A system that told them what was wrong with the world and what they needed to do to fix it. A system that they were in charge of. A system that they defined and that they could make work without his help. And Jesus just would not quit. He kept poking at their system, showing them how inadequate it was. How they kept putting more trust in themselves than they put in God. How they were trusting themselves to fix what's wrong with the world. And to some extent, that's all of us too, right? We're born into this world with our own ideas of what makes sense in this world, of what the real problems are, and of what we need to do about them. We are born into this world, and we don't see it from God's perspective. But we're born into it with the same kind of confidence in ourselves and in our humanities as the religious leaders had. The confidence that we can fix things if we just try a little bit harder. That's how we're born. We come with that innately, and then we turbocharge it with each other. Our families teach that to us. Our schools teach it to us. Our friends teach it to us. And you can trust Jesus, when he sees it in your life, to start poking at it. Not to irritate you, but because he wants something so much better for you. Now, the religious leaders didn't see it that way. They didn't trust him, and so they didn't believe him, and they found ways to explain away the things that they didn't like. Oh, he has an unclean spirit. Only the disciples want him for who he is. Only the disciples are willing to reshape their entire lives around him, to drop everything that they're doing in the middle of the day just so they can be with him, drinking in what he has to say, letting his thoughts and his ideas take priority over everything else in their lives. They trust him. They believe that he understands their problem and that he can do something about it. And in return, Jesus says, they're his family. They are the closest people to him, not people related to him by natural birth, but something much tighter, much more intimate. He acknowledges them in front of everyone else, says, this is my family. Now, don't you want that? Don't you want Jesus to say to you, there is no one closer to me than you are? Regardless of what anyone else thinks of you, regardless of how anyone else treats you, regardless of how many other people reject you, want nothing to do with you, you are family. You are my family. Isn't that what you want to hear Jesus say to you in front of everybody else? If that's going to be you and me today, we're going to have to answer two very important questions from this passage. First, what does Jesus think is wrong with this world and what does he think is the solution? What does Jesus think? And then secondly, is there a good reason to think that he's right? Is there a good reason to trust what he thinks? What's he think about this world, and why should we trust what he thinks? First, what does Jesus think about this world? Notice from this passage that most of what you get is Jesus' teaching. That most of it, verses 23 to 30, revolve around a spiritual conflict between the forces of good and evil. And he's speaking, verse 23, in parables. He's giving physical illustrations in order for us to grasp spiritual realities. So what is it that we learn from these illustrations? We learn first that Jesus believes a naturalistic understanding of this world falls far short 
of reality. He believes that this world is influenced by much more than what you can see and observe in nature. That there is a whole dimension to this world, a spiritual dimension. And that as far as this world is concerned, that dimension is not neutral. And it's certainly not benign. Instead, this world is under the ruling authority of a very powerful evil being. A being who oversees a kingdom, verses 24 to 26, that is not at all divided, but a kingdom that has goals and objectives that all line up in the same direction. A kingdom that is not at odds with itself, ripping itself apart, but that is united and coherent. And that evil spiritual being, through his kingdom, influences the lives of ordinary human beings. He is the strong man of verse 27. He guards his house and the goods in his house. Now clearly the strong man there is Satan. But what are these goods in his house that cannot be plundered unless Satan is first bound up? I don't do this with you often, but let's go to a longer passage from the book of Luke, chapter 13. And Jesus will make clear there what he's thinking about here. This is chapter 13, verse 10. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now you read that passage and you realize that Jesus challenges so much of what we take for granted as modern people. We look at this woman who's bent over and immediately our minds go to all kinds of physical causes of bone density and musculature. And there might be those causes there, but we end our analysis there. We only think in terms of physical causes. Jesus doesn't. He says that's an inadequate way of thinking about her. There is something else going on here as well. That's the activity of Satan. An activity that is personal, both on his part and on hers. He has held her captive. He's bound her for 18 years. Or to use the terms of our passage today, she is one of the goods that he has kept locked up in his house. She has been subject to him. She's been unable to escape from his power and influence over her. And in that respect, she is what? She's an example of what it's like to be a human being on this planet that's under the power and the authority of Satan. Power that as you read through the scripture, you learn that Satan expresses in multiple ways. And so you go to Job chapters 1 and 2, and you learn there that Satan can manipulate inanimate objects, matter and weather patterns, and that he does so to destroy people and to destroy their possessions. 
or you learn there that he can inflict, afflict people directly with diseases, or that he can incite people groups against each other, using them to harm and damage each other. You read through the rest of the scripture. You read in Revelation chapter 2 that he can influence legal proceedings that falsely imprison people. That he's able to do so because Matthew chapter 4, he rules the nations of this world to such an extent that he can give them to anyone that he wants. That he is, as Jesus calls him in the book of John, the ruler of this world. And as the ruler of this world, he is bent on destroying people. That 1 Peter 5, he prowls around seeking a victim in order to destroy that person. That he sets traps for people, 1 Timothy chapter 3. That he takes them captive, 2 Timothy chapter 2, to do his will. Go through scripture and you realize that behind all of the evil that takes place on this planet is a ruler, a schemer, a manipulator, a personal power who's behind all of it influencing it for the sake of ruining and destroying the image of God everywhere he finds it. And Jesus came specifically to dismantle everything that Satan built. In the words of 1 John chapter 3, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so he brought the kingdom of God to this world outside, from outside of this world, outside of Satan's power and influence. He is not, as the religious leaders claimed, working under Satan's authority. He's working against it. He is the one who came to plunder Satan's kingdom, to bring people out of it, to bring people out from under its influence, to release them from Satan's sphere of control. People who cannot liberate themselves by their own power because sin has put us under his power. People who have no hope of escaping that power unless someone stronger than Satan comes to free them. And so when Jesus starts to do that, when he starts to set people free from Satan's power, like when he heals this bent-over woman or he starts to cast out demons, you realize that what he's doing is he is plundering Satan's house. He is taking Satan's goods. That in that moment, Satan is losing control over those people because Jesus is stronger than the strong man which is an amazing thing. That can only happen if someone stronger than Satan is here. Who is stronger than Satan? That's only God. Which is why it is so horrible to confuse the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the power of Satan. They move in opposite directions. There's no overlap between the two. God longs to set people free who are enslaved by Satan, and Satan has no interest in losing those whom he dominates. So if, like the religious leaders, you can confuse God's liberation with Satan's enslavement, if you can accuse Jesus of being empowered by Satan, if you can imagine the devil liberating someone from sin and suffering, liberating them from his control and his power so that he no longer has any authority over them, you don't understand the nature, the nature of real evil and the nature of real goodness. You don't see how bad evil really is. How committed it is to destroying every single human being. And you don't see how good good really is to come and liberate those who have no other alternative. 
And if you persist in believing evil is not as bad as it is, when someone points it out, then you really don't want what God is offering. Because God is the one in Scripture who's told you how bad evil really is and how good good really is. So if you can look at what the Holy Spirit does and say to yourself, yeah, that's just Satan at work. And if you won't hear when someone says, no, that's actually the Holy Spirit, look at how that person is now released from evil. If you reject seeing that goodness, you don't want what God is offering, which means then that you don't want God. For some reason, you've hardened your heart against him. You've rejected him. And Jesus says, when you do that, not in a careless, offhanded moment, but like the religious leaders over and over and over and over again, then there is no hope for you of forgiveness. Because God's the one who forgives. If you don't want him, you don't want what he has to offer. That's the large picture of how Jesus sees this world. That it's under the power of Satan. That people cannot rescue themselves from Satan's power. That Jesus has now come to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. To bring them out from under the power of Satan by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's point one. That's how Jesus sees the world, both what's wrong with it and the solution to what's wrong with it. Now point two. Why should you believe him? Are there reasons for you to think that he's actually right? He's diagnosed the problem a certain way, but lots of people have different diagnoses of what's wrong with this world. So is there anything that helps us believe that Jesus' view is accurate? Which means maybe we should even back up a step and ask ourselves, is there a good reason to believe that this is what the real Jesus thinks? That this is what he said, that this wasn't <clears throat> made up by somebody after the fact, that it wasn't added by the church to bolster what they were teaching later at the time. These are really important questions. They're not just important because skeptics ask them, but they are important because they go to the heart of what is the source of your worldview? Everyone has a worldview. Everyone has some way of understanding life, of how to interpret life, and then what to pursue in life. And everyone's worldview has a source. It comes from somewhere. Our source as Christians, as Christ followers, our source of our worldview is Scripture. Scripture is what gives us our worldview. It is what stands over and evaluates every other thought and every other idea. And it does that because God's given it to us. But how do you know? How do you know that this is really true? That this is what Jesus really said and what he really thinks? How can you trust it? Variety of ways. Here's one. Look at what you learn in Scripture and learn how to ask this question. Is there any other reason to write this down other than this being true? Is there any other reason to write this down other than it being true? And when you ask that question, what is it that jumps out at you from today's text? It's that Jesus' mother and brothers don't believe what he says about himself. Gospel of John chapter 7 states explicitly that Jesus' brothers didn't believe. Here you see it implicitly. They are not on board with him, and they are not on board with his mission. They think he's out of his mind, and so does Mary, his mother. Now think 
a little bit. Mary spoke to an angel before Jesus was conceived. She conceived Jesus without physical intercourse. She was honored by the church as Jesus' mother within 40 years of his death. That Mary thinks that her special miracle baby has lost his mind. Why would you write that about her? Why would you write that about her if it isn't true? It doesn't build up the church, that undermines the church. His brothers agree that he's lost his mind, including James, who later rose to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is not what you expect from a leader of that kind of stature, that growing up he did not believe Jesus and that he actually tried to get in the way of what Jesus was doing. Just think about the incongruity here. On one hand, ordinary people flock to Jesus. They see his power, they see his goodness, and they want more of him. But those who grew up with him, those who could have been expected to have seen and experienced his goodness all of their lives, they don't believe that what he says about himself is true. They don't believe this is real. Now, who would write something like that? The church would not have invented a story that would put his family in such a bad light. There's no payoff for that. This would only get remembered. This would only get written down. This would only be preserved for centuries if what? If it really is true. If this really is the way the people around Jesus related to him. If it really accurately portrays not only the people, but it also accurately portrays Jesus. And so you can trust, this is really what Jesus actually said and thought. This is what he thinks. Because there's no other reason to write it down unless it's what he thinks. So given that, are there reasons then to believe that what he thinks and what he says are true? Let me give you three to consider briefly. First, look at the results. Jesus believes certain things and acts on certain things. Now, what are the results based on what he thinks and what he does? And you realize here the results are undeniable. We saw earlier in chapter 1 that there are demon-possessed people in the synagogue and in the crowds who come to him, people who have been under Satan's power despite living in Israel, despite being involved religiously, people who were held captive by Satan, who had not been helped by any human means, who had not been set free until Jesus came and successfully released them from Satan's power, and when that happened, everyone saw it and everyone knew it including the religious leaders. This wasn't just one or two random people. This was so many people who were being freed. The leaders feel like they have to get involved. They have to find a way to explain all of this away. So the leaders come to see Jesus. Jesus is home, verse 20, which probably means somewhere up in Capernaum. That's in the northern part of Israel. They come from Jerusalem. It's roughly 80 miles away. They walk for 80 miles to come to give a new explanation for why Jesus is doing what he's doing. In other words, this is really, really obvious that Jesus is incredibly successful at what he's doing. He is plundering Satan's kingdom. Everyone knows it. He is literally ripping it apart, freeing people everywhere he went, and everyone knew that he was producing goodness in people's lives at an unprecedented level. That only happens when you see the world correctly, when your worldview is accurate. 
Try acting sometime on an inaccurate worldview, one that does not line up with the way the world is, and at some point you'll discover it all falls apart. You will not be successful at producing good for people if you start badly. You won't be successful. You won't accomplish what you're hoping to. In order to be this good, you have to act in line with reality. You have to act in line with the way that the world really is. You have to act in line with reality to get this kind of level of results. Jesus is having results, which demonstrates what? His assessment of the problem is correct, and his assessment of his power is accurate. Gives you a reason to believe him. Secondly, not only is he getting incredible results from his worldview, all other worldviews are illogical. Love that about the Christian faith. It's beautifully rational. It lines up with reality, and therefore it makes sense. And whatever opposes it, regardless of how good it sounds in the moment, when you take the time to think it through, it, that thing that opposes Christianity just does not make sense. That's not arrogance. Why do we believe what we believe? Because we've been given it to us by God. We didn't come up with this on our own. But when you refuse to go with what God gives you, you can't live in a way that is logical. It's always going to be a hole that appears somewhere. And that's what Jesus does. He says to the scribes, okay, let's assume that you're right, that I cast demons out by the power of Satan. Well, that doesn't make any sense because a house or a kingdom that's divided against itself is just going to fall down and collapse. If it's set against itself, it's coming to an end. In other words, Jesus is saying, if what you're saying is true, that means that Satan is now bent on destroying himself as opposed to destroying humanity. But why would he do that? It would be Satan then who is out of his mind. Nobody believes that he's doing that. Nobody believes that he's destroying his own kingdom, that he's setting free his own prisoners. Look around in the larger world. That is clearly not what's happening in this world. You realize if that were the case, the demons would, ju would just destroy each other. There would be no need for Jesus to cast them out in the first place. There would be no need for the scribes to come down and explain away what he's doing. They could just let it ride. They could celebrate Satan's ruin if what they are saying is true. It's the second reason that you believe Jesus. Any other belief just doesn't add up. Thirdly, ask yourself, who is it that benefits? Who benefits from what Jesus is doing? He's swamped by crowds, so much that we saw in chapter 1 that he can't go to public places anymore because he's crushed by them. Last week, he's in danger of being harmed by them. This week, he can't even eat. He is wearing himself out. His family can see it. They don't understand it, but they can see it. He's swamped by crowds. He's harassed by the religious leaders judged by them, accused by them. Why? When we started this series, we saw that Jesus is not trying to start some kind of mass movement, not looking to build up his power, not trying to build up his reputation. So who is it then that benefits from everything that he's doing? It's not Jesus. He left his home and his family. He's pouring himself out. If it's not for his benefit, it has to be for the benefit of the people that he's helping. Now, when someone does something with no obvious benefits to themselves, but only cost, gives you a reason to believe them. They're not in this for some evil ulterior motive. 
And when you see that about Jesus, it gives you reason to believe that the problem really is this bad. So bad that it takes the power of God through the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus to set you free. It gives you reason to believe that sin and evil and Satan are far more serious than unaided human effort can deal with. When you see Jesus pay what he does, it tells you the problem really is that bad and it tells you that God is really that good. Because Jesus is only getting started paying the cost. He's going to continue doing this all the way to the cross. Where in order to finally bind Satan, the strong man, Jesus himself will be bound. He'll be arrested. And then in order to plunder Satan's house, Jesus will allow his body to be plundered. Stripped. Beaten. Flogged, pierced by thorns, pierced by a, a spear. His body will be broken, and then he'll be bound again to a cross. Helpless, while others do to him whatever they want. Jesus, the strongest man in the universe, will submit to the powers of darkness so that he can bring an end to that kingdom. To do that, he will leave his own family behind on earth, similar to the way that he left his father in heaven, he will experience being forsaken by the Father. He'll pay all of that cost. Why? It's because he wanted something that he didn't have. Something that Satan owned. Something that was in Satan's house under his power. Something that should not have been there. He wanted you. He wanted you to be free from Satan's power so that you could now be part of his family. And so he did what he had to on the cross because it was the only way to free you. And the main point of this passage is to ask you, in light of how Jesus thinks about your greatest need and in light of what he does about it, how do you now respond to him? If you are sitting at his feet, can't get enough of him, you want more and more and more of him, that shows that he did all of that for you. That you are the plunder that he came for, that he worked for, that he wore himself out for. You are now a disciple. And if you have nothing else in the entire world, that alone should fuel you. That should thrill you beyond your belief. That should give you joy that you just cannot push down. But what if you don't have that? What if you don't have that passion, that love, that desire for him? What if you're not really moved by him? You can take him or leave him. What if you don't believe the problem is what he says it is? That it's not as bad as what he says? You know that's possible, right? The religious leaders and his family saw everything that Jesus saw. They saw people struggling in this world under the combined weight of sin and suffering, ruled by a tyrannical evil being. They saw all that Jesus saw, but they did not believe Jesus' take on it. They looked at all of the same stuff and they said, Nope, he's crazy, he's evil. The world's pretty much okay the way it is. Lots of people do that today. 
When you look at world history and current events, there is no evidence there that humanity can fix its own problems. No evidence that give us a little bit of time and humanity will make this all better. And yet humanity, by and large, still says, we got this. What do you do if that's you? Ask Jesus to rescue you, to pull you out of the strong man's house so that you see the world the way that Jesus sees it, so that you see the world the way the world is. See, that's part of Satan's power, to deceive people, to blind people, so that they look at the overwhelming power of evil that controls people and ruins their lives, and they say, it's not so bad. We can fix this. We'll just try a little harder. If that's you, ask Jesus to help you see. And maybe you want to ask him first to help you see the power of darkness in your own life. I know of rescued people who started this way. They thought they were pretty decent people, but then God started to show them they're powerless to be as good as they thought they were or as good as they wanted to be. And that opened the door to them saying, man, I have a real problem. One that I cannot handle on my own. I need help that's beyond me. And they asked Jesus to rescue them. You will never find Jesus delightful. You will never want what he offers until you first see how much you need it. Ask him, ask him to show it to you. And if you're somewhere in the middle there, you do love him and you do want him, but man, you, you, you also love these other things and these other things get in the way and you find them more interesting to you than he is. And so you're fascinated more by your phone than you are by your Lord or by your friends, your lifestyle, your career, your children, your anything. What do you do? Look at him again. Look at all that he's done for you, not to make you feel guilty, but so that it starts to warm your heart toward him. Let it show you how big the problem really is that he had to do all of that for you. But then also let him show you how much he loves you, that he was willing to do all of that for you. No one has ever loved you like that. No one has ever wanted you like that. Look at him and then ask him to do more in your life. Don't settle for just being a little free from Satan's power. Ask him to free you more. Ask him why. Because he will. That's what he came to earth to do. Lord Jesus, thank you. We are not asking something of you that you are unwilling to give. We are asking directly in line with why you came. Lord, I myself, everybody in this room, Lord, we need to be set free from every last vestige of evil and sin, even the ones that we think are okay. Lord God, forgive us for holding on to those things. Lord, you gave your life to free us. Set us free now to see you and to love you in return, to sit at your feet, to want to be with you, to acknowledge how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise and respond with our song.